Welcome back to the History of South Africa podcast with me, your host, Des Latham. This is episode 146, and we're wrapping up the effect of the Battle of Blood River and the reverberation that was felt immediately by Dingana, king of the Zulus. Andres Pretorius had won a major encounter against the Zulu army, which was now in full retreat, and the way to Ngungudlovu was wide open. A day after the battle, on the 17th of December, 1838, Commandant General Pretorius had two Zulu captives brought before him. According to Fortrecker records, he gave them a piece of white calico with his name written on it in black ink and told them to take this to Dingana. They should inform the king that the trekkers were approaching and that he should sue for peace and to send messengers back to start negotiations. And these messengers should carry this cloth. Meanwhile, in Lela Kasumpisi, the Zulu general had ordered his own messengers ahead of the Amabutu, who were now forced marching back to the east to the great place. Isinkeku advisers rushed back, warning Dingana that he should evacuate his beloved Mgungudlovu. As the Fudrikas were on their way, his army had suffered a terrible defeat. Msiana Kamtlana, who led the Mvoko Amabutu regiment, had told the Isinkeku that the king should make for the south side of the drift across the White Mfulosi River to a place called Mvokweni. It was one of his larger homesteads and gave him the option to make a loop north if pursued there. We believe the Isinkeku made it back to Mgungudlovu on the night of the 18th of December. And at night there was a no-entry rule on pain of death for any man who entered the Isigotlo, but this was not a normal time. The command of the home guard at the great place was Velenjeni Ka Mamfongo, who understood that the king had to be woken up whatever the cost. He had remained behind to lead the Amabuto left to protect the king, and then hurried straight into Dingana's sleeping hut. The Boers are chasing us, was the message, and as swiftly as he could, Dingana made ready to leave immediately for Mvokweni. His senior advisers, the Izinkuru, gathered around and all made their way to the large settlement on the south side of the White Mfulosi, escorted by warriors. Dingana was terrified of being caught by the Boers after what he'd done to their families along the Bushman's River, the small Tugela, and to beat Ratif and his party. It was a day later that another messenger hurried up to Dingana and told him, as he hunkered down at Mfukweni, that Pretorius and his Veng commando had arrived at the Mplatuzi River and was about to cross. The Zulu king ordered that his beloved Mgungudlova be raised to the ground, along with two other large Amakanda nearby. Bitterly, he then crossed the White Mfulosi and fled north, turning later to watch the smoke rising from the mountains that lift from the Matlabatini plain to the northeast. At least he'd managed to save his women and his cattle, and they were moving with him, protected by an escort of warriors. The Ven commando had indeed arrived at the watershed between the Mplatusi and the White Mfulosi, somewhere in the vicinity of Babanango. They looked east and saw deep cliffs and ravines in the direction of Mgungundlovu. They were still too far away to see the blaze ordered by Dingana. This area was dotted with homesteads and was eerily quiet, and the trekkers advanced cautiously, their patrols far ahead, scouting for possible threats. On the morning of the 20th of December, they saw Mgungundlovu in the distance wreathed in smoke, much of it still burning. It was a vast complex. The fire was going to burn for days. About half an hour's ride away, they stopped once more and formed a lager near the place of death, Kwamatawani. At that point, they were unaware that the bones of their comrades were lying in the open only a short distance away. 
The trekkers began to loot what they could from the smoky ruins of Dingana's great place, and there was a great deal that had survived the fire. First, however, they were determined to find out where their colleagues lay. Eventually, they found the scattered remains of Retief and his party exposed on the rocky slopes of Kwa Matawani, and a short time later, grief and rage took hold. The Boers managed to identify a few of the bodies, various fathers, brothers and comrades, by looking at the clothing, including Retief's glossy waistcoat, all clinging to the bones. Personal items like rings, shirt studs, knives, tinderboxes, snuffboxes and other belongings were retrieved. One of the men found Retief's leather briefcase and peered inside. This is where the story is disputed by some historians, because the Boers pulled out a document, they say, the treaty apparently ceding Natal to the Trekkers, signed by Dingana. I have explained how this document is of great historical interest, but utterly irrelevant in the debate about land in Natal. Dingana, as you know by now, had signed it merely to pacify Retief to lull him into his final meeting where the Zulu king had managed to convince the Boers to leave their guns outside. Then they were murdered. It was that piece of paper that was Retief's execution notice, if you like. Dingana was never going to honour it in any form whatsoever. He had been discussing murdering Retief for some time. He was hardly going to be handing over land to the man he was going to kill. Now was he? Pretorius's party spent most of the day collecting the bones, enough to fill a wagon, most were unidentified. All were buried at the base of Kwamatawani, the mountain, in a mass grave. The Khoikhoi and Khoisan Achtereis bones were placed in the same grave, the bones of the Amabunu, indistinguishable from the bones of the Khoisan. As John Labant notes, masters and servants lay haphazardly intermingled in death. By the 24th, they had found some of the bones of their comrades who died during the Battle of Italeni as well, if you remember where Pitt and his son Derkies had died. These were also buried. Then the Boers held an auction at Mgungudlovu, and the loot, the ivory, beads, metal goods, the hose, and a silver goblet that was Dingana's property was bought by the commander-in-chief, Pretorius. It was a chance discovery on Christmas Day that almost brought calamity to this Ven commando. Pretorius had been suffering from the wound he'd received at the Battle of Blood River, but was alert enough to interrogate a man who they discovered hiding close to their camp at Umgungudlovu. This was no ordinary man, however. He was a decoy. Bongoza Kamefu of the Ngongoma people knew that the trekkers were after the king's cattle, and their determination to seize the property booty of this entire campaign could be their undoing. Bongoza approached Tingana and suggested a plan to lure the commander into the thornbush felt around the White Mfalosi, where they'd be susceptible to ambush. And Zorbo Kasumpiti, who had rejoined the king's main retinue, agreed. According to Zulu oral tradition, Tingana then claimed the plan as his own, and he crowed to his people later that this stratagem was his. Now see my clever plan, he had said. Just to make sure that everything went according to this plan, Bongoza was doctored by the king's Izinyanga. This would turn the Boers soft. At least, that was the aim. But there's another thing to note here. Bongoza had visited Port Natal, had met the English settlers. He'd seen the trekkers farming around the port, and apparently this was going to help him in the coming interrogation. So, after finding him in the bush alongside their lager, the trekkers interrogated him somewhat roughly. He suddenly blurted out the planned fabrication that Dingana's army was on the run. It had scattered, and the king had fled to the area around Delagoa Bay. 
the Gaza Kingdom, leaving his herd behind in the White Mfalosi Valley. The Boers knew about the Amazulu Amabuta over the past few years, assaulting Gaza, or at least having made it as far as Deligoa Bay over the last two decades, so that for some trekkers hearing this story, it rang true. Many of the assembled trekkers, however, thought it unlikely that he'd escaped so far north without his precious cattle. His izigodlo of women, perhaps, but without his cattle? Unlikely. For some of Pretorius' advisers, a red flag went up, Dingana would never leave his treasure trove, his valuable herd, and flee. The animals were his power. Without them, he was like Superman infected with kryptonite. These advisers said Pretorius should drag Bongoza outside and shoot him, calling his comments a fairy tale. Unfortunately for the Boers, most believed the story. They were hoodwinked. Pretorius said Bongoza would be spared should he lead the Boers to where the cattle were hidden away on the White Mfalosi Valley. Boxing Day dawned, 26 December 1838, and storms abounded. Pretorius wanted to move the lager further east, towards the Mtonjaneni mountain, the heights that overlooked the valley of the White Mfalosi. It's a breathtaking view from the Mtonjaneni down to the flatlands, from the plateau with its mists and cool winds down to the hot, humid plains. A few days before the new year, on 27th December, Bongoza had a rope tied around his neck, he was carried onto a horse. Then the 300 mounted Boers and their guide began their ride towards the Mfalosi Plains. Leading them was Karl Lantmann, but luckily for the Boers, as you're going to hear, the group also included Hans Torns Dalanger. Maybe an entire episode needs to be dedicated to this character, who was possibly one of the most unique of the 1830s. Chiseled by history, implacably independent in thought, you're going to hear what that means for people in a crisis before the end of this episode. Whatever your politics may be, sometimes lateral thinkers are all of our saving graces. Ironically, Hans Dornstelanger and Bongoza Kamefu appear to be hewn by the events of their epoch, totally different cultures and somehow very similar, always situationally aware, in the moment, thinking. They may have been on opposite sides, so to speak, but they were both hewn from Africa, made in the South. Bongoza had convinced the Boers that Dingana had left so quickly his large, valuable herd of cattle remained in the valley of the Watamfalosi. The Zulu king was hoping that the Boers would be content with capturing these and leaving him alone, said Bongoza, continuing as the now garrulous prisoner. In reality, Dingana's army was a threat, diminished perhaps, but they were still taking orders from the king, and there were at least 5,000 in the vicinity. The Ven commander had no idea that this was the case and Bongoza's comments seemed plausible. Hans Dons was one of those who thought that this was a lie, and he was one of those who wanted to shoot Bongoza on the spot. At least 300 trekkers set off, all heavily armed. But Pretorius was suffering. The wound he'd received from the Zulu warrior was causing him much strife, so he stayed behind, leaving Karl Lantman in charge of the commando. Also joining him was the English trader from Port Natal, Alexander Bigger, with his 60 Zulu foot soldiers. After dragging a cannon along for a while, the Boers thought better of it and sent the heavy weapon back to the lager at Mtonjanini. They were heading into broken ground. Some of the commando noted this was perfect territory for a Zulu counter-attack, but the lure of thousands of head of cattle was like a candle to a moth. It's remarkable how often this is the case in historic events. A single person like Bongoza, who can hoodwink highly experienced soldiers, just because they want loot. 
As Sun Tzu says, if you know the enemy and you know yourself, you need not fear the result of a hundred battles. If you know yourself, but not the enemy, for every victory gained, you will also suffer a defeat. If you know neither the enemy nor yourself, you will succumb in every battle. Quite esoteric in the midst of our tale, but the Boers were falling into a trap once more of not knowing the enemy, whereas the Zulu had done the reverse. They knew what triggered the trekkers, and were going to lure them into a trap. So here they were, descending into the White Mvelosi Valley, being led by a man who was the enemy and claimed to have turned into a friend. Suddenly, a small party of Zulu warriors hove into view, then disappeared. They ran away. Bongoza had repeatedly said that only a small group of warriors remained, and the appearance and then retreat seemed to confirm his comments. The Ven Commando riders peered further down into the valley, and there they could vaguely make out black, white and red cattle moving around in the thornbush and scrub. Little did they know that it was actually Zulu warriors with their shields on their backs, providing the impression amongst the bushes and the rocks that they were cows. The Boers took the bait. Landman ordered them to dismount, then lead their horses down the winding path towards their loot. They were now at a distinct disadvantage in a single file. Descending through ravines, thick thorn and scrub amongst the rocks. When this column arrived at the floor of the valley near where the Upati River flows into the White Mfilosi, the landscape became even more threatening. They had entered the valley through a deep narrow gorge and now the aloes and stunted mimosa trees along the slopes took on the form of Zulu warriors. It was hard to tell one from the other. Lantman realized his predicament too late. Bongosa simultaneously said he needed to go to the toilet and using this moment threw off his neck rope and disappeared into the rocky aloe-flecked thorn bushes. The Boers were in big trouble. One moment Bongoza was visible, then he wasn't, and thousands of Zulu warriors were hiding in this landscape. None were seen at this point, but Lantman and more importantly Hans Dornstalange grasped their dire situation at once. Zulu oral tradition has two versions of what happened next. A woman who was with the Zulu warriors shrieked, in an incredibly loud voice that the Boers were surrounded and men of the kings should fight. The sound reverberated for hundreds of meters. Another version points to a Zulu sentry called Kwana yelling, but either way, Dingana's surviving impi of a few thousand that had hidden themselves along this winding path stood up in front alongside behind the Ven commander. You can imagine the shock. However, shock is one thing, guns are another. Many of these warriors had seen what happened when you ran towards trekkers who fired very straight, and they didn't attack in any great numbers, nor directly. This gave the Ven commander an opportunity, and Karl Lantman yelled for the men to stand and fight back to back. Luckily, Hans Dons totally disagreed. The Boers did not have the ammunition to hold off large numbers of Zulu warriors. The only way out of this morass was to jump on their horses and ride down towards the White Mfilosi, away from the winding path and away from their lager. The warriors were expecting the Boers to try and make it back up the steep slope so they were caught off guard by Delunga's move. The trail was rocky but the Ven commander somehow made it out of that ambush zone and eventually they broke through the Zulu warriors. Remarkably, not one of the Boers was wounded. They appeared to escape scot-free. Robert Bigger and his Zulu troops, about 60 as I've said, were not so lucky. As the Ven commander reached the bank of the White Umfalosi, they realized it was in flood. There was a significant island in the middle at that point, so Delunga headed there first and then forded the flooding river on the other side, making for open ground. 
they'd managed to reach the Matlabatini plains. The Zulu continued to harass this group, and then it split up, with a section of about 50 under command of Stefanus Lombard galloping off southeast along the White Umfalosi, heading downstream. They'd make it back to the lager the next day. The rest of the commando under Landmann and Dalonga wheeled around to the northwest, riding, dismounting and firing, riding and repeating. Trying to keep up was Bigger and his men also firing, running, firing. They were making for the Kwa Nolela drift on the Mfulosi, heading back now towards the Mtonjeneni Heights, doubling back. But watching this from nearby was a group of highly motivated Zulu warriors, the men of the Islambedlu Ibuto, who had kept a beady eye on the movements of the Vent Commando and Bigger's foot soldiers. Now they charged and killed five of the Vent Commando at the drift, but the rest managed to break free. The Poors galloped away, leaving Bigger and his men to their fate. To the Englishman's credit, he refused to leave his black soldiers and died gallantly fighting alongside them. It appears the entire section was killed, Bigger and all his 60 men. Landman and Dalanga were fighting off warriors who appeared to come from all directions as they galloped through the large Udlambedlu homestead. Their horses were tiring now and the Zulu continued to run after them. This was midsummer. Temperatures in this valley regularly climb above 35 degrees Celsius. Eventually, the horses managed to outrun the Zulu warriors, helped too by Pretorius, who'd watched everything through a telescope, a chilling scene, and sent a patrol of horsemen to help fight off the last of the Zulu. The Boers had ridden about 50 kilometers in five hours, an almost unheard of feat of flight. Five Boers were dead, along with Bigger and his entire section of 60 soldiers. It's thought that at least 500 Zulu warriors had died as well, but as with all these things, there's been exaggeration. The official record of the trekkers stated that 1,000 Zulus died. Whatever is the actual, the Battle of Upati, as Zulu oral history calls it, was a victory for Dingana. Bongoza was etched into the storyteller's memory as a hero, as was Hans Dons for the Boer storytellers too. The Amazulu preferred to remember this battle and forget Imagabeni or Ngomi, Blood River. There are far more lines for the prose poets to recite about Upati than the defeats. But that's the way it goes in historical matters, is it not? Tingana was still out there, somewhere in the white Umfalosi Valley. Pretorius was still at Mtunjaneni summit. For the next few days, he tried to provoke the Zulu into a full frontal fight, but the warriors stayed out of range. Then on New Year's Eve, 31st December 1838, the Boer commander decided to pack things up. His horses and his men were worn out. They wanted to go home. The cattle they had sought were far away, hidden in ravines. They were running short of ammunition. As the Boers withdrew from Mtonjaneni through the Amakosini Valley, they burned three more of Dingana's large Amakanda to the ground. Pretorius was in no hurry. He dallied amongst the smoking ruins of each homestead, hoping that the Zulu would try to attack again, wanting a decisive end to the kingdom. But each time, the warriors left the commando unmolested. The Boer patrols did have some luck. They captured almost 5,000 head of cattle. But this was about a quarter of what they'd hoped for as they rode into Umgunglovu 11 days earlier. It was with this booty that the men of the Ven commando arrived back at the Suilai, on the Little Together, on the 6th of January, 1839. There was great rejoicing in the cattle were divvied up amongst the men. The damaging last battle, the killing of Bigger, 
the then commando fleeing through the Untlambedlu Amakanda. These stories were suppressed in favor of the Battle of Blood River. In terms of propaganda, it didn't fit the overall picture of the Zulu being defeated and therefore almost immediately disappeared from the settler history books. Back on the Mvelozi, Dingana was still roaming about. The Zulu army was still intact, albeit damaged. The Boers had delivered a stunning military blow against this system, and the destruction of his great place and other homesteads now flaming wrecks had also damaged Dingana's name. There was no glossing over this. He'd been taught a lesson in military tactics by these men on horses with their guns. The Amazulu, however, had some loot of their own. Dozens of muskets dropped during the fighting along the Umfulosi and the Matlabatini plain were picked up and Dingana actually increased the size of his Isitunise mounted section, his Zulu cavalry, if you like, and formed them into an Amabuto of their own. It would take another year before Dingana was gone. In the meantime, he lived on the Matlabatini plain, his servants traipsing all the way to the Mtunjaneni Heights to tap his favorite sweet water from the delightful spring. But eventually Dingana moved east of the Hluhlui River. There his people began dying of malaria in the dense bushveld. So he moved further inland back to the south bank of the Vuna River, close to the confluence with the Black Umfolozi, near where the town of Nongoma is today. Ironically, this is where Jobe of the Ndwandwe used to live before he was chased away by Shaka. So now... A Zulu king was skulking in the place of the Zulu arch-enemy, lurking amongst the aloes and mimosa trees, the acacia, far from his preferred Mgungulovu. And monitoring this weakness was Prince Mpande, biding his time, waiting for his moment to take revenge against Tangana. In Port Natal, there were only five English traders left, and up on the hills above the port, alongside the Umzundusi River, the Boers had selected a patch of ground for their new town. Peter Maritzberg. We are heading towards a new decade, the 1840s, and this decade would see other towns springing up across the Cape and across southern Africa as a new economy based on wool and other products emerged. This period had led to merino sheep being distributed through the region by the 1820 settlers and the fur trekkers, starting in the Eastern Cape but following the wagons all the way into Natal. A new industry was starting up, new frontiers were opening. New friction zones were heating up, but that will halt for this episode. Please head off to the website desmondlatham.blog. I'll load an update about this episode. You can email me from there too, or direct message me on x at deslatham. Until next, saligatli.